But the question was about the technique of practice that this other teacher, uh, Goenkaji, uses, which is colloquially, colloquially called uh, sweeping, uh, which is basically a body scan. You know, and going through the body, feeling the sensation, systematically feeling the sensations in different parts. Simply another way of developing mindfulness. You know, it's mindfulness of the body, sensations and the feelings associated with them. What's important to understand is that there are many techniques for developing mindfulness. And in Burma alone, one of my teachers said there are over 50 different ways of doing Vipassana. So it's not just kind of one narrow technique. There are many approaches. Some focus just on the body, some focus more on mental events. One of the things I appreciate about this way of practice is that it really explicitly develops attention to the whole range, to the body, to feelings, to emotions. Although any other technique, if it's really a genuine technique of Vipassana, will lead to that anyway. So it's just another way to do it. Hmm? I, if you can speak a little louder, I can. Yeah. The the purification process uh, it can be understood in two ways. It it could be understood uh, as a kind of opening up or clearing out of things that have been sort of an opening up of the energy, of the energy field. You know, and that happens in all of the traditions of practice. But there's a danger to that model because unless it's understood very well, it can lead to kind of reaching for something or practicing in order for something to happen. There's another, there's another way of expressing it, which seems to be more, to me, more uh, complete in the moment. And that is that the purification process, although it's reflected in the kinds of experiences that may happen, you know, it really has to do with the quality of the mind, the freedom of the mind, the nature of awareness with respect to any experience that's arising. That's why I said the other day, or whenever it was, to be watchful about interpreting certain sensations as blocks. Because even that kind of interpretation, already there's an agenda. Rather than the purification happening in each moment when the mind is free of grasping, free of aversion, free of ignorance, free of not knowing what's happening. 
pay attention to the quality of the mind at those times. And so you really get a taste of what that kind of freedom is about in the moment. And it's true that until we're fully enlightened, maybe at first those tastes are very momentary. But as we practice, we rest more and more in that quality of awareness that is not attached, not grasping. So you want to recognize when you're with the breath or a sensation or noticing a thought or a feeling, notice the quality of the mind that is freely aware. Okay, there. Did you hear that in the back? Yeah. <laughs> okay. In terms of the whole first part of what you were saying, no, it's not confusion at all. It sounded like an extremely clear perception of how things are. It sounds great. There really isn't walking. Walking is a concept. Breath is a concept. The, the mystery, the 
excitement, the joy, the fear, all of that in the practice is precisely happen precisely happens because we are really opening you know it's, it's so easy to use these words but they they actually reflect what happens it is a radically different way of understanding the world of understanding who we are until we actually observe very carefully and go into this whole process we are living in quite a solidified view of things to an extent that we may not even realize the sense of the self the sense of the body as things begin to open up we really see that things are not or how we had seen things is just one small sliver of the spectrum of possible ways to know things and possible ways to experience things and as we explore different levels of perception, different understandings, there is a whole range of attendant emotions around it. And sometimes there is tremendous joy, sometimes there is fear. As the process unfolds, you will see that the mind comes to a place of profound equanimity, where there's a resting in awareness And everything is just rolling on. Did I tell you the, my parachute story? It's actually Ramdas's story, but <laughs> he, he used it. He used this. It's, it really reflects the development of practice. He said, "Meditation, it's like, or the spiritual path, like somebody jumping out of an airplane, or being pushed out of an airplane. And at first, there's free fall. Yeah, and there's." The first moments of exhilaration. But then the person realizes that they don't have a parachute. So then there is total fear, total panic. Oh, no parachute. And so they're going down, 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 down in this total fear. At a certain point, they realize there's no ground. <laughs> so then they relax. So that's kind of it. You know, it's like we jump, we jump out of the plane, and at first it's, it's quite, this is the honeymoon in practice. People think, oh, this is great. But then as the solid supports of our life, you know, we begin to see that they're not so solid, there's panic and fear until you realize that the nature of all phenomena, it's just all insubstantial empty phenomena. I wouldn't interpret. Just let it all happen. 
There's a very nice haiku poem, which is a could be a support for for undertaking the practice. It says, simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. So it's resting in the Dharma, resting in the lap of the Buddha. Let the whole thing unfold. problem is in thinking about it. And as soon as you started having those thoughts, you know, what is this going to be like? What does this mean out in the world? If you were able at that time to simply note thinking, you would have stayed right in the process, letting it unfold. But as soon as we start analyzing or commenting or evaluating, already we're, we're caught up in our attempt to solidify our experience in a certain way, uh, and we get caught in that conceptual realm, there are times when that might be helpful. So I'm not suggesting we never do that. In the course of intensive practice, it's not helpful. It would be better just to simply trust. <laughs> you know, let it all unfold. Now, presumably, the Buddha was living in as in an enlightened a state as one can. He was very effective in the world. I don't think we have to worry. Because really what we're doing is weakening and uprooting the forces of greed, hatred, and ignorance. That's what is going on. That's not a problem. They support one another. They uh, are somewhat different practices. Uh, and it's really the difference between concentration techniques and awareness techniques. For example, when we're doing the metta, we're really concentrating the mind or having the mind settle in a particular feeling, which is a very open and loving one. Not particularly seeing the impermanent momentary nature of phenomena. But they're very supportive of one another because the more open we are, the more loving 
then the awareness practice becomes much easier. You know, because we're not, we're not living or being uh, defensive with what comes up. We're really open to it. So they're different, but, but really very uh, complementary or closely connected. You'll see, you know, in the, in the course of your spiritual life, at times you might, you, at times it's just doing the Vipassana practice, at times you might want to do some intensive metta practice. So you really can see both the difference and how they help one another. I think we need to uh, go to interviews. Breathe with no breath and walk with no movement. <laughs> and enjoy the day. You have questions this morning on your Dhamma practice? <laughs> Good thing it's cold. <laughs> I like uh, beginning my sittings with this opening sound. Mm-hmm. And it seems like um, a week or so ago, the sound of the furnace just took me. down to lower and lower gears where there's just barely an audible groan. I mean, I'm beginning to think what's the state of my ears. This morning, uh, during the sitting, I, I had a sound crew in here at midnight recording the furnace. <laughs> Can you all hear in the back? <laughs> um, maybe a little carried away. Um, what is important is to bring your mindfulness to the distinction of the various sequences of your experience so that on the very bare sensation level, there is just the sound vibration that's occurring. That's one and usually the very initial uh, experience when we're paying attention. Then, in your experience, uh, what is happening is a lot of uh, enjoyment of that experience. There's one link that is important to notice before that enjoyment, and that is the pleasant feeling 
that comes from that sound in the moment of any experience through any of the uh, sense doors. Right along with that initial experience is some affect of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In this case for you, it's clearly uh, a very pleasant feeling, and there's an enjoyment of that feeling. I think where you might be, what you're missing in not noticing the, in, uh, the pleasantness and the enjoyment, when we don't notice that, then we start being attached to that pleasant feeling. The sound is just the sound. The pleasantness is, is just the pleasantness, and even the enjoyment, that's fine too. It's just the enjoyment of that pleasantness. But if we're not mindful of that enjoyment of the pleasantness, it becomes uh, attachment and then clinging. And that's where you're beginning probably to feel hooked, you know, imagining get, getting recorded, I'm sure, and taking it home with you and <laughs> continuing the experience. <laughs> so all you need to do is pay attention what you notice in the moment. Uh, the attachment, you notice that. The enjoyment of the pleasant feeling. Also the pleasant feeling, when that's clear to you. And that you can catch, it's kind of subtle, but it happens just in the moment that you're hearing the sound. And the sound vibration itself. And it's not to chop it up analytically, but it's really to, it's really to make the uh, mindfulness, the sati, all that more subtle in noticing the variations of the experience the nuances of experience. Questions about um, having expectations about deepening his mindfulness and um, uh, just the frustration that comes up, although he tries to notice the relationship to it and so forth. Um, how exactly are you being mindful of the expectation? Noted as expectation, does it is there a sense of connecting mindfully with what it is? With okay, so there's not a whole there's not in that acceptance stage of really moving into it and holding with the acceptance stage recognition acceptance yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right, you're missing that. <laughs> One way, perhaps, of opening up more to the energy of expectation is to see it, sense it, feel it as another quality of the wanting mind. See that? Expecting something to happen, wanting something to happen. So to move into it more as, as, you know, as your mindfulness feels that quality of mind that's expecting, that's wanting, that's seeking, that's searching for, and to, you know, to open to it as that is, as that is. And that way you'll be able to uh, frame it for the time that it's there and disidentify more, investigate its qualities and not try to justify or get rid of it or do anything about it. It's really important to know without any uh, qualifications about this wanting mind. You know, it's important to take an interest in it as, as we do with the detached mind. The wanting mind is, 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 a, is a gem to know about. It's the second noble truth. And we're going to be living with it for a long time. <laughs> so the more that we start getting open, you know, used to it and open to it and uh, accepting of it, the more it's not going to delude us or cause us to justify and qualify and so forth. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed the wanting mind, but by implication, because of the aversion that rises to the to it. Yeah, so I, by implication, there must be some desires through circumstances that are not going along with my scheme, plan. The same with these kinds of mm-hmm. things. So, I'm having, that sounds like a fruitful approach, but mm-hmm. to put a wanting mind in the background and it rises, like if I have aversion, I, I just automatically, there's an implication that there must be some attachment to something. You don't have a handle on how to get to it. How to get to what? Yeah, I'm usually working with the aversion and right. not paying attention to it. Right. Well, what is, at that moment, is it the aversion that's the more predominant experience for you? Yeah. yeah. And then, then you think about all the aversion that's coming out of some kind of wanting, but you don't get in touch with that. You, you don't need to dig for it. It's, while you're exploring the uh, condemning mind, you may be aware of you know, the other side of it. Because often what we are trying to push away, the other side of that is we're trying to seek for something else. I mean, but when you see that or sense that, then it's to open to that. And the reverse is true. When we're wanting something, we may be not wanting what we're experiencing, too. So, I mean, they're very closely connected. It's just uh, uh, wanting something or wanting to get rid of something. They both come out of a kind of wanting, it's true. But it's whatever, whatever, however, whatever the experience is at that moment that you're, is it the mind that's pushing away or the mind that's seeking for? And you just notice that as it comes up. You don't need to push. So maybe I have an assumption that every aversion has some, lurking in the background, has some want or desire. I don't know if they don't have aversion. But if you're not experiencing it yeah, at that moment, that's okay. that's okay. Yeah. 
I mean, in a way, you're dealing with it by opening and experiencing the aversion. You see? <laughs> it can be a drag. <laughs> yes? Other kinds of desire. Yeah, there's, there's lots of kinds of desire, including those that you're, uh, that you're asking about. Generally, in English, we just have one word. In the Pali, there's, there's lots of words. And for what you're talking about, for example, there, there is a word, uh, chanda, which just means just desire or will to do. And it has no ethical significance necessarily at all just the impulse to, to go, to do, uh, and so forth. And there's also a, a desire called dhamma chanda, which is uh, dhamma desire. And it's that seeking, that urge toward dhamma uh, in whatever form, metta, uh, awareness, liberation, and so forth. And it's quite a healthy desire. It too can become attached, and that's... Uh, to be noticed. I mean, when one is mindful, you can feel when it, we become uh, contracted around that desire, or when it's really the sense of a liberating urge, a li- liberating momentum. So those, those are indeed quite healthy desires. Uh, the desire to be generous, the desire to give, the desire to love. Healthy desires. For the most part, it's usually not possible to pick one or the other, although it can happen in some cases. But what happens in the moment of that experience is the mind is, the knowing mind, the experiencing mind, is bent toward one of three facets of that moment's experience. Um, One of them is to the actual sound vibration. So in that moment of that first moment of experience, the knowing or the experiencing is of just the pure sound vibration, material element. The other, um, the second one, is to be aware of, uh, it's as if your awareness is stationed on the inner sensitivity of the ear, the little filaments in there that are receiving that sound vibration and themselves vibrating. So sometimes people experience that. It's that receptor quality, the inner ear receiving the sound. That's also a material element. And the third is, as you have also mentioned, is the actual knowing of it itself, which is the mental element, that is, the consciousness of hearing, 
Hearing itself is the, the mental experiencing of that sound vibration. So in a moment, you, it may be any one of those three, the, the mental hearing, the sound vibration, or the receptivity, the inner ear receiving the sound. And uh, there's usually no way to particularly control it. Yeah, you can shift. In the first moment's experience, it's, uh, it's very hard because all of a sudden there's a sound and you, you don't have time to do that. But as it goes on and continues, yes, you can shift. You can be aware of the knowing or you can then try to tune in to the sound. But you can't sort of pre-program it necessarily. Okay, please have a day of practice full of uh, Dhamma Chanda, Dhamma desire. Do you have any questions, anything you'd like to talk about in your practice, from your practice? Yeah. Yeah, um, I thought in your talk the other night about the difference between guilt and remorse was profound. For this culture and probably for the indigenous people that lived here before Columbus arrived. Um, what, I just wonder, what is the... Um, the variable that makes the difference between having the energy and not having the energy to overcome the problem. Okay. Um, I think it has, uh, it is a profound issue, you know, so it has a lot of different levels. Some of it has to do with this force of identification or solidification where we create a self, a seemingly permanent self, around an activity or an action or a behavior. And that's the mind that says, I have always been that way and I will always be that way. Um, or that the mind that narrows in on a particular facet of experience and completely overlooks everything else that has also gone by. <clears throat> and the story that I often tell about it um, <clears throat> Uh, happened actually when Joseph and I were teaching together in this small retreat in Africa, actually. And um, we were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and somebody came into the kitchen quite distressed. And he said to Joseph, I've just had a really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And the man said, well, I felt all of this tension in my jaw and I saw what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and how I always will be and I've never been able to get close to people and it's just ruined my life. And Joseph said to him, as you might imagine, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I'm such an uptight person, I always have been and you know, it's never going to change. And, and Joseph said to him once more, you know, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he the man went on in this tremendous elaboration that was creating a self, a future, an unchanging future, a whole world view based on that experience. And it was really funny for me sitting there watching the two of them go back and forth um, because they were really talking about two different levels of reality. 
And finally, Joseph said something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? You know, but this is, is really what we do. We have um, perhaps very genuinely acted wrongly. You know, we've hurt somebody, we've harmed ourselves through something we've said or something we've done. If we take that to be who we really are, you know, this is who I really am, that quality of seizing upon it, creating an identity out of it, then it's very difficult to let go. We won't have the energy to move on, to see the, the world of really infinite possibilities that is arising right now. If we can see it as a mistake that we made, experience the pain of that, and let go of it, realizing that not just poetically, but actually we are dying and being reborn in each moment, that we can begin again right now, then we can move on. You know, we still feel the pain of having done it, but we do have the energy of moving on. This is really a new beginning. And that's one reason why in the practice we emphasize beginning again so much. It's not just um, the technology of the practice to begin again. It brings us closer to the truth to recognize that what's just come up may be miserable. It may have been, you know, 40 minutes since we felt the breath. It doesn't matter. In the moment that we recognize that, if we can let go and begin again, then we are, we are resonating with the truth of how things are, that right now is a new moment. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, sometimes letting go doesn't mean the object will go away. You know, it means that our relationship to it is is more spacious, and we're not seizing upon it. You know, saying this is who I really am, or this is going to be here forever but we're more creating a space in which it can come and go on its own. It may be back in 10 seconds, but that's okay. Yeah, it's again and again and again and again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, um, many people do mindfulness practice without a metta, without a specific metta practice. Uh, you know, it's taught, and I think it's true, that all of the qualities of love and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity come from the purification of the mind. So we're, in mindfulness practice, we're deconditioning the tendency towards attachment, towards aversion, and towards delusion. And so what arises quite naturally, um, without any contrivance, is, is great love and compassion and so on. If you do both practices, then they get to support one another and they reinforce one another. And people find that if they do metta, say, at the beginning of a sitting of mindfulness, you know, just for five minutes or something, 
that there is a certain softness that comes in the mindfulness quite readily, you know, rather than having it, it grow um, on its own. It's, it's brought into that, and it's that gentleness and softness that allows us to let go a little bit more easily, you know, to allow things to come, whatever they are, to let them go. If you do um, mindfulness practice first, and then you're doing metta, then there's, again, a much greater ability to let go of the distractions. You know, if, if you're sitting and doing metta and a particular emotion, say, arises, if you're afraid of it, if you're resentful of the fact that it's come up, if you're judging it, then it's much more difficult to let go of it. You know, if you can see it in its own nature, see that it's simply coming and going, bringing all the wisdom to bear from having done mindfulness practice, then it's much easier to let go of it. Say, oh, that's, you know, that's the bubble arising in the moment without identifying with it. It goes and you can continue on in the metta. So it's, they very much uh, reinforce one another and help one another. Um, yes, I would say so. The, um, there's so many ways of conceptualizing or envisioning the practice. You know, one, one way to conceptualize it or to express it is to uh, sense the naturalness of mindfulness, you know, and to... Um, to see how we've habituated ourselves away from it. But one of my teachers once, um, is like he, he uh, used to draw diagrams in the air to express it, and he said, in the beginning, it's like, uh, we're over here in this part of a curve, and on the top is mindfulness. And we kind of schlep our way up to the top. <laughs> we get there, and then we easily fall down the other side. But after just a little while, it's like a plane, you know, so that we're as easily mindful as not mindful. And then after a greater period of time, it's like the reverse curve, you know, so that we're mindful and that's in the middle. And it almost takes a kind of effort (laughs) to get up there to one of the extremes where we've lost touch with that state of mindfulness. And I think it's like that. but it all comes together through some effort at continuity, you know, in these situations, because that is how we, it's almost like we abide more and more in the state of mindfulness, and so the mind moves towards that in lots of different situations throughout the day, whether we're consciously trying or not, it doesn't matter. Um, but it takes it takes a willingness to begin again and again and again and again so that it does become this, it's like home base, you know, it's this place where we abide. You know, and so that's the kind of effort that it really means. It's not that mindfulness is so difficult, but 
to remember mindfulness in a whole host of situations and varieties of circumstances and pleasure and pain and simplicity and complexity that we find ourselves in, it's not so easy to continually remember, like, oh. Um, and we, we say noting as, you know, as I've said, it's both the literal and the symbolic expression of that, of that quality of being present without attachment, aversion, or delusion. And so you might almost gauge how the practice is going by sensing how long it takes before that little voice arises in the mind in the middle of some incredible turbulence. You know, that little voice that says, why not try noting it? (laughs) You know, after you've run through a list of maybe 50 different things to do about it, and their voice comes and says, note it. Let's note it. You know, let's try to be aware of it. Let's be mindful of it. You know, and that's what really makes the difference is having that come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to um, uh, the Buddha talking about mindfulness being the root of all wholesome activity. You know, that, that uh, a true morality is based on mindfulness, not on conforming to external guidelines. Um, but the mindfulness has to be genuine, you know, and real and vibrant and there for that to actually function. And so it's, it's more a question of habituating the mind to mindfulness over and over and over and over and over and over again. Seems to be the theme of the day. <laughs> it must be that period of the retreat. <laughs> you know, and, and to not, um, not overlook the power of that. Sometimes in practice we want a certain grandiosity of experience and just that continual coming back and coming back and getting back in touch and being mindful and being mindful and being mindful doesn't seem like much, but it really is the heart essence of it all. Everything flows from there. So it's, it's really quite crucial to have the, the willingness and the patience to do that again and again and again. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.